Uh, and the Sunday that I'm actually teaching that class is our last Sunday here at Green Tree, and Scott's going to be preaching that Sunday. Scott was one of the first people to ever preach a sermon at Green Tree Community Church, and so I thought it would be appropriate for him on that Sunday to kind of send us into our new, uh, into our new dig. So that's uh, a lot of exciting stuff going on, a lot of challenging things happening. Uh, we are uh, in the middle of our summer series, You Pick It, We'll Preach It. Last spring, we asked for your questions. You gave us a whole lot more than we could ever actually preach on in a summer. We, we probably would have needed a year's worth of You Pick It, We Preach It to get all the way through the questions. Uh, but way back in April, one of the questions that was posed, which I found intriguing and compelling, was this question. Is social justice the gospel? Is social justice the sum and substance of the gospel? So as I was doing my my planning and looking at the summer, realizing what today uh, would be, uh, I thought it would be an appropriate time for us to turn our attention, uh, not just to the upcoming Sunday school class, but also uh, to that question. As Scott says, today marks one year anniversary of a lot of turmoil, a lot of, uh, a lot of difficulties in our greater St. Louis community. Uh, I understand going into this sermon that the term social justice can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different People. I understand that it can be a hot-button phrase. Uh, as I was preparing for the sermon, I, I, I've done a lot of reading, but I've also asked a lot of questions to a lot of people I respect here in St. Louis and around the country. Uh, and so I wrote to about 30 different folks, and I asked them this question, what is your definition of biblical social justice? Uh, and I talked to authors, I talked to educators, I talked to business people, and got a lot of great answers. This is an answer I received from a pastor friend of mine who's actually going to preach one Sunday in 2016 in Green Tree. He's the moderator of our entire denomination and a, and a phenomenal guy. Uh, and he didn't write me a definition of social justice. He wrote me a word of warning on this topic. He said, Tom, my quick response. I did a three-week series on Micah 6.8, uh, which is God calling his people to justice and to mercy. When I preached on do justice, I gave do justice. I gave biblical examples, especially from the prophets, of personal justice, social and communal justice. Two people left our church because of those sermons. When I finally got one of them to meet with me for lunch, she said, "You preached on social justice." I said, "I did not. I preached on the biblical view of justice." He said, "You said social justice bunches of times, and that's a leftist phrase for a failed social agenda." Etc. Etc. How dare you impute that to the Bible? I said no. I gave examples of where the Bible says justice has social or wider implications, like fair judges, the poor getting a fair hearing, etc. He said no. You just taught a leftist term of social justice. So I challenged him to go back and listen to the sermon because I deliberately said the word social justice only once, knowing and knowing is in big caps. It's a trigger word. And defined it carefully the other times that I talked about shared justice, etc. He came back to me and apologized. He said, you were right. You only said that phrase one time. I overreacted to the phrase. But now I can't go back. I'm gone from this church. The last part was fine with me, <laughs> he writes. <laughs> yeah, I knew you're, you're going to love Mike when you meet him. So, he concludes, know it's a trigger word. Know that you must preach the whole counsel of God and include a societal aspect of justice. But make sure you explain your terms. You demand, Mike. Um, so, 
I am hopeful uh, that uh, I've always, I always tell people I have the best congregation in the United States of America, and I believe that. Um, and I'm confident that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can think above and beyond cliche, uh, that we can actually intellectually and intentionally and purposefully submit our minds to the Word of God and to hear what He has to say, because really what we're talking about this morning, and actually this one sermon has turned into two sermons. Uh, I couldn't get it all done in one, so we're going to come back to it next week. Uh, but I believe that if we pay careful attention to God's Word, the pathway will be clear for disciples of Jesus and His calling in our lives uh, and the notion of the greater uh, care for our society. So we're not going to look at one passage this morning. We're going to look at a bunch of passages this morning. If you grabbed a bulletin when you came in, you will notice uh, on that page there are four different passages. We're going to look, uh, excuse me, five. We're going to look at Deuteronomy, Job, the Psalms, Zechariah, and Luke. And on top of that, I'm going to give you several other passages of Scripture. This is going to be topical in nature. It's not going to be expository, just looking at one passage. We're going to bounce around. It'll be very difficult for you to keep up with your Bible, but you may be able to. So we're going to put everything, uh, as we typically do, on the screen this morning. And normally I read out of my own Bible as I read the Word of God, but I don't think I can even turn the pages fast enough. So I'm going to turn, and I'm going to read the Scriptures from the screen this morning, uh, beginning in Deuteronomy. And what I'm going to read is what you have written uh, in the bulletin this morning. Hear the Word of God. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food, clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And out of the book of Job, Job is speaking to his friends and he says this as he reflects about his own life. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Moving on to the Psalms, towards the very end of the Psalms, as the psalmist writes about the God of justice. God is the one who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The prophet Zechariah, approximately 500 years before Jesus was born, said this to the people of Judah, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and a stopped their ears that they might not hear. Finally, the words of Jesus from Luke's gospel. He said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled 
the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray to God. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Uh, As we look at our community, as we look at our world, so many people are are defining terms like social justice in in so many different ways that uh, it's probably more confusing than it is helpful to actually uh, use the term. But Father, you are the God of light. You are the God of honesty and clarity. There is no darkness in you. No confusion in your words. You speak your truth into the hearts and souls of all mankind. And so we pray that you would give us the ability this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to hear your word and to apply it to our lives. Father, I pray for every person in this room, me included, uh, as we discuss this issue this morning because there's a lot of history here. There's a lot of emotion here. And I pray, Father, that we would submit all of that, uh, not to to the authority of of the church, but to your authority, to your scripture. Father, where we're wrong, we pray that you would correct us. Where we are correct, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us. Uh, Where we need to be challenged, where we need to be inspired, Lord, we pray that you would do your work in our lives. Where we need to repent and ask for forgiveness, we pray for the humility to do that, knowing that you are the God who forgives. You are the God of grace. You are the God of mercy. Lord, forgive me my sin. Don't let me stay in the way of what you want us to understand and apply to our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you the sermon in a sentence this morning, and it will be uh, for next week as well, so you, you get to kind of get out ahead of it a little bit. Uh, it is simply this, biblical social justice is the practical application of God's grace shared freely with everyone through evangelism, relief, development, and social reform. One more time. Biblical social justice is the practical application of God's grace shared freely with everyone through evangelism, relief, development, and social reform. Here's how we're going to break this down since it's turned into two sermons. This morning, we're going to look at that, that foundational Uh, understanding of God's grace. Uh, Then we're going to touch on just ever so briefly evangelism because I think that's something that most disciples in this room understand. Whether or not we practice it or not is a different question, but I think that's a a term with which we are relatively familiar. Uh, But then I want to get into the, the practical application side of caring for others. And so this morning we're going to also cover that word relief. Uh, Next Sunday, We'll do a really quick review, and we're going to spend our time talking about development and social reform. So uh, let's jump in. Uh, and I think to begin with, we need to understand that, that we really are looking for something out of Scripture, whether it's this topic or any other, that we can live in our lives, something that is practical, something that we can get not only our, our minds around, but also our, you know, kind of our hands and, and feet around so that it has a practical application to our lives. So one of my friends that I, that I wrote to uh, and asked him for, for um, you know, if he had a, a definition, he said this, I don't belong on this list of people, which is funny because he's one of the smartest people I know. Uh, I truly have no idea how to answer, he writes. Do to others as you would have done to you is all I got. 
uh, and it is enough to keep me constantly challenged. I do think that if everyone who is currently busy trying to define, create, establish, or inspire social justice, whatever that means to each person, since it seems like there's no agreement, if, if everyone would put that energy into understanding, obeying, and imitating Jesus, we would find ourselves in a much more socially just world. So I can't define it well, but I feel like we will all know it when we see it. I think there's a lot of wisdom uh, in those words, and that's what we're after, kind of knowing it when we see it, and I think that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see it in God's Word, and the question then becomes is, do I see this also in my life? Am I living out the calling of Scripture on my life? So with that in mind, let's start with this notion of a foundation of grace. If, if biblical social justice is the application of God's grace, what exactly does that mean? We're going to walk through a few verses this morning. First of all, biblical social justice is based on the character of God. Look at Deuteronomy verses 10, seven, or chapter 10, 17, and 18. The Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. You and I are not inviting God into our efforts and our energies for biblical social justice. Rather, we are trying to follow the character of our Heavenly Father. Before you or I ever thought about this topic, God had already defined it for us, and not in a passive way, but in an active way. Moses is describing the character of God, but he does so by talking about how you can observe God in the world. God is the one who's looking out for the father, fatherless. God, God is the one who takes no bribe. He's no partial. There's no bigotry within the character of God himself. So we must understand that what we are attempting to do in our lives across the board as disciples, but in particular in this topic, is we're trying to move closer to the character of our father. We're trying to submit our thinking and our will and our passion and our energy and our efforts to reflect that of our God. Not only is it based on the character of God, but biblical social justice is a mindset before it is an action. It is a way of thinking before it's actually a behavior or an activity. What does God say to the people in Deuteronomy when, when he's calling them to this lifestyle? He says, remember you need to think the right way. Love the sojourner. Why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So for the Old Testament Israelite, when they were, when they were faced with the challenge of, of sacrificially helping a stranger to them, a complete alien to them, they had to do what? They had to think first. That's right. I was an alien, and God looked after me. My forebears were enslaved, and, and God graciously set them free. That's part of my national identity, that's part of who I am. I need to think in that way. And thinking about God setting us free makes us more grateful and it gives us hearts that long to then reflect that to others. But before it's an action, it's a thought. Nathan preached a couple of Sundays on Ephesians chapter 2, so a bit of this may be repetitive. But we need to remember that as well. The New Testament Christian, how do we need to think? We need to think like people who understand that it's by grace we have been saved. That we were separated from Christ. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope without God in the world. Something radical happened. But now, in Christ Jesus, 
you have been brought near. And it goes on to talk about our relationship with God through the Lord Jesus. So Old Testament Israel, you were, you, were, you were enslaved, you were strangers. What happened? God set you free. New Testament Christians, you were strangers. You were without hope in the world. What was the change that transpired? God's grace through the Lord Jesus grabbed a hold of your life, and he gave you a new life. You were without hope, but now you're filled with spiritual gratitude. You're filled with a passion to love God because he first loved you without that spiritual gratitude. There is no biblical social justice. If you and I don't understand the length to which God went to save us, and our lives are not fundamentally lived out of thanksgiving, then this topic will have no bearing on us because we will all fall short of the mark. We, we will never fulfill this because it won't be of interest to us. People who are the most thankful tend to be the people that care the most deeply. Tim Keller puts it this way in his uh, book, uh, generous justice, which I would encourage all of you to read. Actually, the last side of the sermon, the slide of the sermon, is a picture of the cover of that book. So I won't forget to remind you uh, to pick it up. It's a wonderful book, and actually, there's some copies on the back table if you want to grab one this morning. But Keller says this: before you can give this uh, neighbor love, right? So the notion of neighbor love, you need to receive it. Only if you see that you have been saved graciously by someone who owes you the opposite. Will you go into the world looking to help absolutely anyone in need? Once we receive this ultimate radical neighbor love through Jesus, we can start to be the neighbors that the Bible calls us to be. That's the foundation of grace for biblical justice. And I believe that the, the, the last ingredient of this is that as we think about biblical social justice, as we think about actively loving our neighbors, as we think about going into the world and caring for people, we need to understand that we must have an eternal perspective. This isn't just about the temporal. It's not just about the here and now. Jesus says to his, his disciples, as he's teaching them to have this perspective, he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's actively day by day. That's your life and my life, taking up the identity of Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of the world and following him faithfully day in and day out. But then Jesus says, here's why that's important, disciples. Here's why this is crucial for all of you. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, Jesus says you can't earn your salvation. That's what he means right there. Whoever would try to save his life is going to lose it. So if your plan of action for eternity is to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, I did better than about 70% of the rest of the earth. I worked really hard at it. I put some money in the offering plate. I really tried to, to, to look out for people. I tried not to lie too much. I tried, you know, I was faithful to my spouse. I tried to be nice to my kids and, and, and pass on good things to them. And, and it's by my work that you need to let me into heaven. You will die and you will go to hell because you cannot possibly live the righteous life that the law of God requires. And I wouldn't love you if I didn't tell you that. And Jesus says, don't misunderstand, friends. You can't earn your salvation. Even if you're thinking, I want to try and do that, you will fail. Why? Because we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. For every one thing that I've done where I've done well and I've, and I've loved as God has called me to love, I've done ten other things that have, have made me ashamed to, to even pretend to say that I love God. I see my own sin for what it is, or at least I have a glimpse of my own sin for what it is. 
I appreciate Jesus loving us enough to say, if you're trying to save your life in your own merit, you're, you're running down a road that will take you nowhere. You will ultimately end up losing your life. But if you trust in me, you trust in the cross of Christ and what, what I've done for you, you trust in God's grace and God's mercy, you will have eternal life, right? So whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Here's the balancing act that Christians need to think about that nobody else really does. And this is why it's biblical social justice, and, and it's not just social justice. Because social justice, kind of, kind of whatever form it takes, finds its most importance in, in the here and now. In making sure that everything in the here and now is as equitable and as fair and, and as good as it can be for as many people possible. Without bias, without bigotry, without judgment. That's a good thing. Don't hear me say that's a bad thing. But what it lacks is the eternal perspective. And ultimately, the biggest question that a person is faced with is, where will I spend eternity? Because we've been created for eternity. We've been created for a relationship with God. So Jesus says, come, and, come to the gospel. Come put your faith in me and live. So before we get to the, to the human side, to the, to the temporal care for people in our community, whatever that looks like, our first priority is the, their eternal salvation. And that's why I, I've used in my definition that biblical social justice, the practical application of God's grace shared freely with everyone through evangelism. If I only have a minute left on earth and I'm talking to a stranger and they're starving to death, I'm not going to be worried about their food. I'm going to take that last minute to worry about their soul and tell them about Jesus. Evangelism must be part of our definition of biblical social justice. Making sure that people know the cross of Christ is for them. Making sure people understand that God invites them into a life-saving, eternally life-saving relationship with Jesus. That is paramount of importance to the Christian community. But it doesn't stop there. Because the practical application of grace comes in so many ways through meeting physical and the social needs of our community. David Brooks is a writer for the New York Times and he wrote an article in late September when the same-sex marriage ruling came out by the Supreme Court. Uh, and he was kind enough to, to tell us that we have lost that social battle. Uh, now, David Brooks, I, I like his writing. I, I appreciate him. Uh, he doesn't claim to be a Christian. He has lots of Christian friends. Uh, but he had an interesting take on, on this whole thing. Uh, he, he suggested that we kind of lay down that fight because that one's lost. We're not going to. It may be lost, but we're going to continue to proclaim the truth. But he said there's another way that you could identify and connect with the larger culture that would actually you know, really put you in a very positive light. And here's what he wrote in talking about Christians. could be the people who help reweave the sinews of our society. You already subscribe to a faith built on selfless love. You can serve as examples of commitment. You're equipped with a vocabulary to distinguishing right from wrong, what dignifies and what demeans. You already, but in private, tithe to the poor and nurture the lonely. The defining face of the Christian community could be this. Those who are the people who, excuse me, those are the people who go into underprivileged areas and form organizations to help nurture stable families. Those are the people who build community institutions and places where, they're, where they are sparse. Those are the people who can help us think about how economic joblessness and spiritual poverty reinforce each other. 
These are the people who can uh, converse with us about transcendence in everyday life. If an unbeliever understands the importance of the connection between our message and our, and our, and our generosity and our graciousness and our compassion and our desire, our passion for equality for all, then we ought to understand it as well because we have it from a biblical context. The foundation is grace. The foundation is grace in my life, then lived out in the lives of others. So how is it to be lived out in the context of our world today? Well, the first word of the three and the one we're going to look at this morning is the notion of relief, the notion of, of helping someone who, is, who cannot help themselves. Let me give you some of the words that the Bible uses to describe. This isn't a conclusive list, but it's a pretty good one. When Scripture talks about folks that are needy, the folks that, that need assistance, that can't help themselves, the Bible uses words like widow, orphan, the poor, those who are oppressed, the prisoner, the needy, the fatherless, the blind, the lame, the crippled, the stranger, the sojourner. Those are the types of words that Scripture uses. Go back to what Job said about how he looked at that group of people, that class of people. How did he interact with them? I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Job says that I understand that there's a group of people, there's a subset in my culture that simply cannot do for themselves. And I'm going to spend the resources that God has given me. And the resources that God gave Job were spectacular. Job was probably kind of the Bill Gates of his generation. He, he couldn't count all the resources that he had. And Job said, I'm going to actively use those resources in order to bring relief to the sufferings of those who cannot help themselves. I want to remind us once again, as I did earlier in the foundation of grace, grace that this, this notion of relief, this notion of biblical social justice in terms of relief is actually God's pathway. He is the author of this type of thinking. Psalm 146 7 through 9, we, we read this earlier. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God is already actively involved in this. That's why I said it's not us inviting God into our efforts and our energy and our work, but rather it's us going along and partnering with where he's already going. A few years ago, uh, a friend of mine and I were talking, and they said they were listening to a sermon series. I think at the time it was probably on DVDs. This is going back a few years. And uh, they said, I'm listening to the sermon series on the book of Ruth. And I really love it. And I can't even quite remember who, who they were listening to. Uh, but I said, I said you know, I, I, I'm learning some new things. But I just, in the back of my mind somewhere, I know I've studied Ruth before. And I can't quite figure out where it was. Um, but when I hear this preacher talking, and, and he talks about, you know, the Boaz and, and how he loves Ruth and all the, these things and how it all ties together and God's, I just know I've heard that somewhere before. He said, do you have any idea where I might have heard that before, okay? Now, if you ever have that thought cross your mind in a conversation with your pastor, let me give you a better way to say it, okay? <laughs> have you ever preached on the book of Ruth and I've just forgotten? <laughs> so I said, well, you know, about... 
three years ago, I, I did a six-week series on the book of Ruth. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. All right. And, and off he went, and I smiled and, and went on with my day. But for us going to God and saying, now, God, you have any ideas on social justice? It's kind of a silly question. <laughs> He's the author. He, he's the one who was speaking about it, you know, millennia before we were ever walking on the planet. God is the one who is the author of caring for those who cannot care for themselves. And he calls his believers, he calls his children to be involved in the relief efforts of those who cannot help themselves. So just a, a simple illustration, a few years ago, the tornado hits Joplin, Missouri, and a group of people at Green Tree, two or three people at Green Tree, uh, investigate it and get after it. And we end up spending about two years, and many of you went on trips to Joplin to help folks who simply could not help themselves. That's the calling that God has placed on our lives. And in fact, when God's people get off track, when we ignore that, when we make up excuses why we don't need to be involved in relief efforts, God actually judges us when we do the opposite. Look at Zechariah's words. He said, this is what God taught you. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you devise evil against uh, one another in your heart. And then he's speaking back to what happened to the generation that went into exile that was punished by God. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped up their ears that they might not hear. What Zechariah is reminding the people who have come back from the exile is the reason that the exile happened in the first place. The reason God allowed the Babylonians to come in and conquer in 587 and take everybody off to captivity was not just because of idol worship. That was the foundation, but it's what sprung from idol worship. And what springs from worshiping anything other than God, including yourself, is harming other people. If you turn your back on the grace of God, you will, at some phase in your life, on a fairly regular basis, harm other people because you're going to be self-centered. You're going to be worried about yourself first. And you can't be worried about yourself first and not occasionally hurt someone else. It's just going to happen. And so when God calls the people of Israel to account, he doesn't just say it's because you stopped worshiping me. He says, when you stopped worshiping me, here's what you did. You did the exact opposite of what I told you to do, and you looked for ways to harm people that, that couldn't take care of themselves. And when my prophets came to confront you on it, you literally put your hands on yours and went, la, 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 I can't hear what you're saying. How's that for stubborn? Was that too loud? Because I put my hands on my ears and I couldn't, I couldn't hear. I'm sorry if it was. Collectively, the nation of Israel went, la, la, la. <laughs> and so do we sometimes when we reject the grace of God. We need to understand that when we refuse to be involved in relief, we're actually doing the opposite of what God has called us to. But I also want to say in, under this topic in biblical social justice and relief, it's just as much about what we won't do as it is what we will do. Look at Exodus chapter 22. God says to the children of Israel on their way to the promised land, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. A step in the right direction would be to say, I'm not going to hurt anybody else. A step in the right direction says, well, before I can actually be an agent for good, I can start by not being an agent for bad, by confessing my lack of care for the widow and the orphan, for seeing my life at times of being self-centered and, and simply by default hurting others. We need to remember it's as much about what we won't do as what we will. But Jesus also says that part of biblical social justice is being generous 
with those who simply cannot repay you. They do not have the means to do so. So Jesus gets invited to a very nice party, and he's at the home of a very wealthy person. And the person is not a bad person because they're wealthy. That just happens to be the context. Jesus hung out with a ton of rich people. Uh, not, Jesus didn't just, people think Jesus hung out with the poor all the time. He did, but he hung out with a whole bunch of rich people as well because the gospel is for everybody. Rich or poor, black, white, slave, free, anybody, the gospel is, is to be brought to bear on everyone's lives. But Jesus says this to the rich person, to the person that has a lot of resources. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite the people that can love you in return, right? Then you'll be repaid. That's all you'll get out of it. So you have some friends over and you have a nice dinner. What's going to happen? You're going to go to their house and have a nice dinner. Not bad, but in the eternal scope of things, it's not all that great. Rather what? When you give a feast down at the bottom, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, and the blind. You'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. I don't think Jesus is saying you can't have friends over to dinner. If you hear that, I think you're, you're trying to hear something that isn't there. I think what Jesus is saying is when you use your resources, some portion of those resources need to be used for people who cannot repay you. For whatever reason, he doesn't say for people who cannot repay you, but they're really good people inside. They just have bad circumstances. He doesn't say that. He says they're simply to be used for people who cannot repay you. That's how open our hand should be. A lot of you know Catherine Shaw in our, our church, and she, uh, she did this ministry for years without us, and now she's helping other people get involved, and she brings relief to the homeless. And there are times when she stays with them a little bit longer, and we're going to talk a little bit about development next week and helping people move out of those circumstances. But for, for the purposes this morning, a lot of times it's simply just handing someone something because they need it for no other reason. Just saying, Jesus loves you, and you have a need, and I can meet it. Sometimes we overthink this thing, friends. Jesus says, just have an open hand with some portion of your resources because there are people who can't help themselves. And don't, you, you know, you're not judge, jury, right? Just help. Just be open to give to someone who can't repay you. Because by the way, what on earth can I give to God to repay him for what Jesus did on the cross for me? What do you have in your bank account or in your life that you would actually want to stand before God and say, this is payment for what Jesus has done for me? We can't begin to repay the debt of grace that has been given to us. Do our lives on a practical daily way reflect and understanding. My last thought under, the, uh, under relief is we need to, because Jesus has called us to, to be generous even when it is costly. Um, Jesus in Luke chapter 10, talking to a, 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 law, a lawyer who came up to him and said, what do, I, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him what to do. And, and he says, love your neighbors yourself. And the guy says, who's my neighbor? And that's where we get the story of the Good Samaritan, where the Jewish guy gets robbed and beat up, and he's left for dead on the side of the road. And a Samaritan comes along, and he helps him. And the Samaritan now, uh, fast forward in this story, the Samaritan, who's an enemy of the Jews, uh, has this guy at the local inn. And, and he's got him all bandaged up. The doctor came and, and kind of took care of him and got his wounds uh, dressed, and, and, and he's on the right path. And the next way he takes that two denarii, which is uh, you know, a decent chunk of change, uh, probably three, four weeks worth of works, money, and he goes, gives it to the innkeeper. He says, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. It costs that guy something to care for someone. He didn't uh, do it in a way that, that didn't take anything out of his pocket, but rather it was something that actually challenged him. Paul says in Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let me tell you what Jonathan Edwards has written 
about this. I think I actually have this one on the screen. Thank you. This is Jonathan Edwards. He says, we in many cases may by the rule of the gospel be obliged to give to others when we can't without suffering ourselves. If our neighbor's difficulties and necessities are much greater than ours, and we see that they are not likely like to be relieved, we should be willing to suffer with them and to take part of their burden upon ourselves, or else how is that rule fulfilled of bearing one another's burdens? It's easy maybe to help with a, with a dollar here or a dollar there, but to actually come alongside someone and bear their burden, to give in a way that restricts me using my resources for me, Jesus says that's part of relief. It's not the whole story, friends. We're going to look at the other parts of it next week. But God has brought us relief through Christ Jesus. And he's granted us grace at the greatest personal cost. God is the one who first has saved the helpless and the helpless who have created our own brokenness by our sin and our rebellion. We deserve nothing of God's love and have not earned one iota of the grace of Jesus Christ. I ask you then, where's our passion? Where's our mercy? Where's our active insistence that we will not allow bigotry and suffering and poverty to have the last word in our community? How can we be disciples of Jesus if inactivity and indifference define our lives when it comes to relief? Or as the Apostle James put it, a whole lot better than I could. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things, let's just say the things needed, not the things needed, the things needed for the body, what good is that? A lot of you probably know William Wilberforce, uh, who was the agent for uh, bringing down the slave trade in England in 1805. Uh, the British government finally voted uh, to end the slave trade. But that wasn't the only thing that Wilberforce did in his lifetime. Uh, I just jotted down a couple of other things. Wilberforce championed the cause and the campaigns for the Society for the Suppression of Vice. I want to start that one in the United States today. The Society for the Suppression of Vice. What he was doing was saying is that uh, the prostitutes in London are being taken advantage of by the wealthy men of London, and maybe there's something wrong with that. Maybe I, we should help those women who literally have been enslaved and can't help themselves. He also took on support for the British, British missionary work in India. He was one of the key members in Parliament who helped create a free colony in Sierra Leone. He founded the Christian Missionary Society and the Society for the Prevention of the Cruelty of Animals, which is a forerunner to the Humane Society of the United States and the, and the, and the biblical godly reason why we're having a dog park at Green Tree Community Church. <laughs> but Wilberforce, like so many other disciples, cared about re just relief, helping those who can't help themselves. There are challenges in this, friends. There are a couple of specific challenges I want to mention this morning. The first is the challenge that I have every day when I place a low value on my need for grace. Tim Keller in the book that I, I've just read put it this way. Are you poor in spirit or are you middle class in spirit? <laughs> I thought that was a great way to say it. A lot of times I think, well, I just am not that bad. I, I need some grace, but, but probably not as much as some of my other friends. Instead of saying, 
if it weren't for the grace of God, I would be doomed for all of eternity, and that's exactly what I deserve. And having a deep and abiding trust in the grace of God, personally understanding how much I need a Savior. If I don't think that way, I'm not going to live that way. Second challenge that I'll mention this morning, but I'm just going to mention two. The second is this. It's hard to give like Jesus defined, is it not? We are, by definition, in our day and age, consumers in the Western world. And it's much easier for us to make excuses than to actually actively engage. I have a lot of quotes this morning. I have, I have two more. But I want to read you a quote from a Scottish preacher, 19th century preacher, who died when he was 30 years old. And he, and he wrote this when he was about 26, which is just absolutely amazing. Robert Murray McShane wrote this on this notion of, of how it's tough and it's easier to make excuses. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray at night. Some of you pray night and day to be branches to the true vine. He's speaking to John 15 there. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he were yet rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Objection one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection number two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection number three, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said yet the same with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much Give often, give freely to the vile, to the poor, to the thankless, to the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word, it is more blessed to give than receive. So what are the opportunities that are before us this morning? Again, there are many. I'm just going to mention three very quickly for you. First one is this. Active biblical justice, if we will embrace God's definition, not societies, not cultures, but God's definition, it loosens the world's grip on our heart and our soul. It makes the things that are temporal much less important to us, and the things that are eternal begin to have their right place and their right weight in our lives. Secondly, active biblical justice is a witness for the compassion and the grace of God. As Brooks wrote earlier, who's not a believer, your life of giving to the needy, your life of relief points to what you say you believe. Social justice as an end in itself is good. It's not, if it helps someone, not necessarily a bad thing, depending on what definition you look at. But biblical social justice has as its foundation the character of God, and it can go so much deeper and so much further, and it will bring people to have to wrestle with the claims of Christ. Our giving in relief forces people to say, why are they doing that? And that's where we get to say, don't look at us, look at Jesus. The third opportunity is that act of biblical social justice holds the only power for true life transformation. As God changes your heart, as God changes my heart, something pretty radical happens in our priorities, in the, in the passion and the compassion of our lives. C.P. Wagner 
modern-day theologian speaking about this topic wrote the following. I'm going to close with this. Imagine that you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a, war, in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color. You have no hope that any of this will change. Around you is society governed by the iron law of achievement. Skilled goods flaunted before you, your eyes on TV screens, and in thousands of ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievement. You are a failure. You know that you will continue to be a failure because there is no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered. Your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count even more, that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely and irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now this gospel not simply proclaimed, but embodied in a community. I'd like to write embodied by Green Tree Community Church. I didn't cry last Sunday, so I'm getting all my crying out this Sunday. Where was I? <laughs> Justified by sheer grace, it seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine furthermore this community determined to infuse the wider culture along with its political and economic institutions with the message it seeks to embody and proclaim this justification by grace proclaimed and practiced. Amen. Let's pray. We're going to go a couple minutes late this morning. I'll just tell you that right now. I want to spend some time in prayer. And what I'd like to do uh, is give you a chance to pray if you would like to. Uh, so if you have anything on your heart, and it could be prayer for repentance and asking for forgiveness. It could be prayer for uh, green tree to be used by God. It could be prayer that God would use you personally. Uh, but if you would like to pray out loud for the next couple minutes, let me invite you to stand and to pray loudly so your brothers and sisters around you can hear you. And then in a few minutes, I will close us with prayer. And if, you, if that's uncomfortable to you, no pressure. You can just pray silently in your heart. But let's spend a few minutes praying.